If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And I am extremely excited today for us to be talking with B. Bocalandro about finding meaning in your nonprofit job. Before we do, I want to touch bases about something that I said six months ago. Six months ago on the podcast, I had said that I did not think it was a good time to do strategic planning. It's now time for me to share with you that I think as we look into 2021, 2021 might actually be a good time to think about strategic planning. The reason I said this back in April, May, and June is there were just too many unknowns. But I believe in January 2021, there will be a lot more knowns than there are unknowns. So if you're thinking about strategic planning, it might be a good time to get it started. So just wanted to make sure that I shared that with you. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce B. Bocalandro with you. Oh my gosh, there are so many reasons why we are having her on this podcast and so many reasons why we are having this conversation about finding meaning in your nonprofit job. You all know that I've been in the nonprofit sector for 25 to 30 years at this point. And time and time again, I will see people, smart people, bright people, articulate people, who will come into the nonprofit sector really genuinely believing that every day they are going to come to work inspired and passionate about the organization's mission, and every day they are going to feel like they are changing lives. And then, oftentimes, there are folks that are in positions like in the finance office or at the front desk or a direct service position or a middle management position, at some point starts to feel like just a job. Then sometimes people start to feel like, you know, I could be a middle manager in corporate America and maybe it might even be better. Or I could work at a front desk of a for-profit dental clinic and it might feel better than being at the front desk of my nonprofit clinic. So I think it's really critical that we talk about ways that we can bring meaning to our jobs in the nonprofit sector beyond just the larger mission 
that your nonprofit is pushing toward. And that is why we have the founder of VeraWorks with us today. Through her company, B helps companies engage employees in doing good work. And let me share with you, she works with big household name companies that you have heard of. Levi, EWC, FedEx, Disney. I mean, I could continue listing them out, but I would spend the next 15 minutes listing all of the household brands that she has worked with, where she has helped corporate employees find meaning and purpose in their job. And she is so passionate about this. And this is, again, something that I love. She is so passionate about this that instead of just saying, okay, this is proprietary, if you don't work with VeraWorks, you don't get the secret sauce, she's actually put all of this in a book that's coming out November 2020. So she has written a book called Do Good at Work, How Simple Acts of Social Purpose Drive Success and Well-Being. I love the fact that she's being open source, and she's telling the world how they can do this as well. And before I introduce her, I also just have to share with you, this book, which is not yet released as of this recording date, is already receiving critical acclaim. Adam Grant has listed her book as one of 30 books that everyone should be reading this fall. And when you look at Adam Grant's list, her book is beside Jerry Seinfeld, Guy Raz, John Cleese, other people, again, who you have heard of. So, B, I am so happy and excited that you are joining us today. I am too. I'm thrilled to be here. Your audience are among my favorite people in the world. You know, one thing that you didn't mention in the intro, and I'm not even sure that you know this, but I teach nonprofit leaders at Georgetown University. And at one point, I moved away from the Washington, D.C. area to California, and my boss said, hey, we should talk. And I was really nervous because I thought, oh, my God, she's going to tell me now that you're moving, we should probably find a replacement. And she was really nervous that I was going to say I was not going to teach any longer because it required me to get on a plane. But the truth is, I told her, you would not be able to get rid of me for this job because walking into that classroom with 30 nonprofit leaders is the highlight of my year. So I am really thrilled to be here. That's awesome. And thank you so much for sharing that. I think I, and I certainly saw this about everything that I read about you as I was researching you. You are a for-profit person with the heart of a nonprofit. And I can just, I can tell that. It, just completely clear. I'm glad you mentioned that you were willing to get on a plane to go back and teach. Because in your book, I was fortunate you shared an advanced copy with me. Thank you. And in your book, you tell a great story about someone in the TSA checkpoint who has the superpower to change people's day. Can you tell us about that? This was a just a regular day. I'm at the Dallas airport in the TSA line. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm on my phone. And I could hear someone, I'm not going to sing because you do not want to hear my singing and it would not do justice to this, but I can hear this male syncopated version acapella of happy birthday. And I look up and it's the TSA agent. And he's singing it to a woman, to like a middle-aged woman. 
when I get up there, I ask him about it. And he tells me, he tells me he's a singer in a band. And a few years earlier, he just decided to have some fun and said, I'm looking at the IDs. I know it, whether it's their birthday or not. If it's their birthday, I'll just give them a little, you know, serenade. And, you know, it's just a couple of measures. And one of the early people that he did this to was a gentleman who had mobility problems. And he looked up, it, this was in the evening now, and he told this TSA agent, you know, you're the only person today who has recognized my birthday. And the agent said, after that experience, I have never foregone the opportunity to bring a little brightness into someone's birthday. And he says, every day, people thank me every week. At least one person says I'm the only one. Now, sometimes it's in the morning, so maybe they'll get a birthday greeting from others during the day. And what's amazing is he's telling me this story, and I keep asking him questions because, you know, I'm just so intrigued by this. But then there's a woman, also a TSA agent, and she says, it's amazing how much happiness he brings to people. And even those who don't say he's the only birthday greeting, you can tell that they're happier as soon as he does this. And the reason I put that story in the book is that a lot of us feel like, you know, we're, we're handed our jobs. You know, here's the job description and here's what you do with it. And it's, it has a prescribed amount of meaning or lack of meaning, but that's your job. And really you're doing it because it's an obligation as an adult to go into work and do a job and then, you know, get your salary and, you know, pay for whatever you need to pay for. But what this TSA agent was doing was like, hmm, I'm not buying that. <laughs> if, if I don't feel that my job is like improving the world enough, I'm going to mess with it. I'm going to improve my job and I'm, I'm going to push the boundaries of it. And I'm going to bring happiness to others. What he is doing is igniting his everyday job with social purpose. And social purpose means that you're helping either others. It doesn't have to be a, an official cause. It could just be helping other individuals more than your job would minimally require or that you are helping a cause, that you're helping with hunger, or you're helping with COVID-19, or you're helping with social injustice. And so that's why that story is in the book, because it's an example of someone doing what I call job purposing, which is igniting meaning and purpose in their own job, not waiting for their employer to do it, but doing it themselves. And part of what I'm so struck by about that story is his job satisfaction must have gone way up. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why when I walk into that Georgetown classroom with the 30 nonprofit leaders, I am so happy. And it is because it is well established that anybody who feels that their job has social purpose, A, is happier with their job. So their satisfaction is higher. My own research shows about 20% higher satisfaction, but there are lots of others, academics that have similar findings as well. They're more engaged in the job. So that means that they're more likely to just have the day go by really quickly and they're just enraptured by what they're doing. They're more likely to stay at the job 
they're more likely to perform better. So there are researchers out there that looked at individuals who knew that their job was helping with social purpose uh, issue. In this case, it was education. And people who had an identical job but didn't know that it was serving any purpose, any social purpose, the first group not only did more work, they took shorter breaks and research finds that the quality of work was better. So you're actually a better performer. You're more likely to get a raise because it's so obvious that you are performing better to third people. You're more likely to get promoted because it's so obvious to other people that you're performing better. So those of you in the nonprofit sector, you guys are wiser than the rest of the world because you at some point already knew this and you chose to work in the nonprofit sector. So fundamentally, you have an advantage because at a structural level, you are working for social purpose. That's not to say that what Dolph (laughs) mentioned earlier can't happen. I mean, you're on the sunny side of work structurally because you have a social purpose mission by definition otherwise you wouldn't have gotten you know your 501c3 status but it is possible to occlude that benefit by everything else that happens around the job having said that the advantage that you have is considerable so we know that 85% of people that move from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector say that they will remain there for the rest of their careers. We're like, I am not going back to the corporate sector. I am not going back there. The nonprofit sector, you guys are, I'm telling you, you're happier, you're wiser for having chosen this. But that doesn't mean that things can't go wrong and that you can't do things to enhance more the sense of purpose that you have, even though you have that structural benefit. Let's talk about that. What can nonprofits be doing to leverage that structural benefit so that it enhances the sense of job purposing even more? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's one chapter in the book that talks about what drives all the benefits of social purpose. And these are all evidence-based. There's eight of them. They... (laughs) It's a really dorky acronym, but hey, if it's memorable, then it works. Uh, The acronym is We Give It. So I think the first thing to do is actually an assessment. Let's say you manage a team at a nonprofit. If you could look at your team and go, which ones of these eight are we meeting and which ones aren't we meeting? I'm just going to list them real quickly. We probably don't have time to go into all of them. If you guys contact me and, and we'll share the contact information later, I'm, I'm happy to like just send you this chapter if, if that's what you need. But basically, the, they are, the social purpose needs to be work, doesn't need to be, but it's better if it's work-related. So you have an advantage in the nonprofit sector because you already have it folded in. So that's mostly for the corporate people. I got to ask you a question about that. So when you say it's work-related, I assume what that means is, as an example, it has to be related to the work that those individuals are doing. It's not, oh, let's as a group all go volunteer at a Habitat build. The first one is better. Okay. The more to the core of the job. But the second one, because you said let's all and it's with your colleagues, anytime we do a group thing with our colleagues, it feels work related, which is why those holiday parties are probably so awkward. But in this case, it's a good thing, right? 
because what work-related means is if at the end of the workday, your spouse asks you, hey, how was work? And you go, oh my God, work was terrible. Like there were all these fires to put out and people were in a bad mood and I didn't get anything done. But the highlight of my day was at lunch, I tutored a child in reading, right? So that person at lunch, they were probably at their desk and maybe that child that they were tutoring, they know about that tutoring program because of work. But in their minds, there was work and there was tutoring the child. Almost like tutoring the child is in the in the vacation category. Like it's kind of remotely related to work, but they don't go together. On the other hand, if you get home and your spouse asks, uh, how is work? And you go, well, there were lots of problems and I didn't get much done. But oh my God, like, you know, tutoring, you know, Camillo over lunch, it just made the whole workday great. So that's what you want, that in people's minds, it feels like the workday. Got it. Okay. Sorry, I had to ask that follow-up question. All right, E. Okay, E, employee crafted. So if your staff can take a role in designing whatever it is that you're doing to serve the world that means that they'll own it more. Group, I already mentioned group. Anything that you do with colleagues will augment the benefits. And we talked about some of the benefits already, which is job satisfaction, engagement, all of those things. By the way, there are all sorts of personal benefits too. You're also healthier, like your cardiovascular health is better. You, you're gonna live longer if your weeks have social purpose in them. So um, group is the next one. Impact evident. Okay, this one is big for nonprofits. Impact evident means that you feel confident that what you are doing is actually helping that family or is actually increasing the chances that you know, the ocean will be clean for our grandchildren. Dolph, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but I think that this is where a lot of nonprofits fail, that the day-to-day tasks, they're not confident that they're actually doing good out there. That's an interesting perspective, and I think you're probably right. The impact is not evident. And I think that does impact if you're in the finance office or the front desk, You don't have this real sense of, yes, we're changing lives every day, or yes, we're making the oceans cleaner. Great. And then the next one is visceral. This is kind of, I mean, we're so quirky as humans. So cognitively, we might know, okay, you know what, because I'm I'm in the finance department and I was able to, you know, save this much money, then this is this much more money that goes to our homeless clients. Okay. So you might feel good about that cognitively, but that is all on paper. So the next driver is that you have to viscerally feel the impact. And that means that you met one of the families and you saw the, you know, the four-year-old girl like run around the apartment and go like, oh my God, we get to live here. We get to live here. That it has to have some heart in it. So it's not just enough to know that on paper, like on a pie chart that you made a difference but that you feel it in your heart. So that's visceral. Okay, evolving. Dolph, when you talked about, you know, you, you get to the nonprofit sector and you, and you have this job, you're all excited about it, you're changing the world, and then it turns into a job. 
really often what's missing there is change. So one of the quirks that we have as humans is that something that delights us on day one, on day 10, or year 10, you know, doesn't delight us any longer. So this is all about, you know, making sure people grow into different jobs, bigger jobs, take on other responsibilities. It just needs to evolve. So if you as a supervisor are like, wow, I was, you know, I have a team of three. When they all came in, they were happy. Two years later, they're antsy. They're looking for other jobs. I did something wrong. You probably didn't do anything wrong. You know, they just need to evolve. We need to evolve as humans. So what I think I hear you saying, and this is my sudden realization, what's happened is they've outgrown your department because your department's not grown. Oh, I love that. That's literally what I just heard. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, I said that? (laughs) I'm impressed with myself. That is really what you said. Someone's been here two years and they're ready to leave. That's because they've outgrown our department. And we've not grown our department to continue to engage them. Yes. Wow. I love that. We should co-write the next book, Dolph. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. The seventh one is introspective. There's lots of evidence from linguistics and from education that if we don't verbally express something, so this can be in writing, it can be speaking about an experience, we actually don't learn a whole lot about the experience. And it doesn't affect us. It almost like bounces off of us. So the introspective one is Try to make sure that you, if you're doing this for yourself or your staff, reflect. Reflection is like one of the most powerful tools we have. And it's so simple. It's free, except for a little bit of time. And so what that means is, you know, maybe on Fridays, there could be a brown bag lunch and it could be like, you know, what did you learn on Friday or what was a peak and what was a low and How does this connect to helping those homeless families? Just reflecting on the social purpose activities will help all those benefits that we talked about, including health, including satisfaction, retention, all of those stick because otherwise it's harder for them to stick. And then the final one is tenderly led. There are organizations that do really well in the first seven, but then somehow... And Dolph, you know, as someone who works with leaders, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Somehow the leadership decides that the way to lead is very objective and all about logic and not a whole lot about heart and, and, you know, not showing they care about, again, that family and that four-year-old. And like somehow that is the model of leadership that someone adopts and If this is happening, then you're undermining all the benefits that we talked about. So those are the the seven drivers of high impact job purposing. And I would say that the first step is just go through and go, whoa, where can we improve? Which one of these could we improve? And the beauty is like small, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and small improvements can make a huge difference. We're really sensitized to this. And by the way, you can have a world-class, like socially purpose driven team that is really satisfied in doing all these things. And you're only meeting like two thirds of these to any high degree. You don't have to meet them all, but these are the things to look at. I love this. Help me 
maybe with some examples of nonprofits that have done a really good job of job purposing and getting the we give it right. The one that comes to mind immediately when you ask that is TutorMate. So TutorMate is an organization that offers reading assistance to first graders. It's half an hour a week. It's remote. It's not even video. So there's a beautiful interface. So as a tutor, uh, so I've been a tutor. So as a tutor, I would see like the flashcards, right? And I read off the flashcards and then the student is looking at some different version of what I'm looking at that works for him or her. It's uh, obviously during the school year, it has lots of structural disadvantages. And this is why I chose this example, actually, because when you think about it, it's not terribly work related. I didn't have, you know, a big role in crafting it. So the employee crafted is not necessarily there. It's not group. It's one-on-one. The impact is kind of evident because they move up in grade level, but not totally. It's somewhat visceral because you can hear their voice. And, you know, I mean, these kids are just <laughs> unbelievably charming, but they're, you're not in the same place. You can't even see them. It's a pretty stable model. So it's not that evolving. Um, and then introspective, when you think about it, it's not that introspective and tenderly led. Actually, they probably do a great job at that. So what have they done to have it work better? First of all, impact evident. They went out and they hired a third party to look at, well, does this really work? And they share that. So it's in, it's in the intro video. When you become a tutor, it's there. You know from the beginning, wow, this child has a much better chance of going to second grade if I help him or her with this. The visceral part. So at the end of the school year, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens this next school year. But at the end of the school year, you are invited to the classroom as a tutor with the other tutors. And let me tell you, if you ever want to feel like a rock star, all you have to do is become a tutor mate tutor. Because as soon as the child realizes that you are, you know, the bee that we, he or she was on the phone with, I mean, they will like run to you and tackle you with this huge hug. And I still have like the picture of the first grader that I tutored up because it's just that meaningful. In terms of evolving, again, they want to stick to their model because it works really well, but they have an online event for all the tutors from everywhere and they make things novel and they're just always working to make things novel. And then in terms of introspective, I think it's the same thing. They Through communications and how did this go and what did you think, they're always making us think about it and give them feedback. I consider this program a smashing success. Like, I just think the tutors are these, you know, happy, high retention, high performing workers. The program works, it's sustainable and all of that. But you can see that it wasn't total rocket science, right? You just kind of go down the list and it's like, let's do a a few things here and let's, you know, we have this disadvantage, let's try to make up for it. So um, that's, that's an example. Now that you have shared that, I have an example of job purposing from my own career that I never realized that's what was happening. 20 plus years ago, when I was the director of development at the St. Vincent de Paul Society, One of the rules was that all of us as employees needed to volunteer 
on average, one hour a week somewhere else in the agency. And so twice a month, I taught in the evening in our life skills program, and I taught household budgeting and finance because I'm pretty good at household budgeting and finance. And it was this really powerful experience because I had the opportunity, as the development director, I normally did not get to meet clients unless I was taking a donor around or something like that. I really didn't get to meet clients. So I had the opportunity to work one-on-one or one-on, there were group classes, so one-on-two or three people at a time and help them with their budget and help them figure out how they can make what they have coming in work. And then also that meant that I knew they could get financial assistance to the St. Vincent de Paul Society because this class was a requirement for them. And it was great because I brought something that I'm really passionate about, and it's a skill that I don't really, at the time, did not really use at work. But it's something I was really passionate about. And it also, frankly, enhanced my ability to do my job. Because now when I talk to donors, I could talk about, oh, yeah, I volunteer in our life skills program, and here's what I do. And let me tell you about this client, Francine. For listeners, I put that in air quotes because I would never actually use a client's real name unless I had the client's permission. So let me tell you about this client, Francine, and oh, my gosh, Here's what we did for her, and it was life-changing, and I'm so excited about this. But it's interesting. I never realized that was job-purposing. That was 100% (laughs) job-purposing. Yes. I love that example. You know, one tidbit about that is that you did use your skills, and that's one way to make it feel work-related, too. So that works as well. And your point that you were doing this and you didn't know you were doing it. So, you know, I've called this job purposing, you know, anytime you take your job and you're like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do some good for my job, you know, or more good than I normally do. You know, that is job purposing. But, you know, all I did was label it because many, many happy, fulfilled, skyrocketing career people naturally do this, but they don't really know that they're doing it. If I were to go to you and go, Hey, Dolph, do you know that you're probably 20% more satisfied and half as likely to leave your job and that actually you're going to sleep better tonight because that's what you chose to do with your volunteer hours? You'd be like, I don't think so. I mean, it's a good thing to do, but it's not that impactful, but it is, it is. And a lot of people naturally do this. So the beauty of this is that like all I've had to do is like, gather those stories. People are asking, how did you, you have over 100 examples in the book? I'm like, well, yeah, because (laughs) there's all these people doing amazing things all around us. So I'll just share with you, you can put it in the second edition when you write that in five years. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) But I also just have to say, in in the interest of full disclosure, we did have a couple staff members who really resented it. We had a couple staff members who felt like it was forced volunteerism and they just, frankly, their minds, their hearts, their bodies just kind of closed off to it. So like, as an example, they might go and stock shelves in the food pantry and grumble the entire time. You know, I'm a highly trained, fill in the blank, I don't want to out anybody as having been disgruntled by it. I'm a highly trained professional and I'm just stocking shelves. So it it was interesting and it's not the majority of people, but we did have some people who really were, really felt like it was forced and were upset about it. Yes. So I think our awareness of what acts of social purpose do for us and really that it's a human need. So there's a, there's a cardiologist in New York, uh, his name is Rosansky, and he basically says that social purpose is the, the 
greatest driver of human wellness. He's a doctor and he's saying this. So I think our awareness of this, of our need for social purpose and our ability to even take it in, it can fall anywhere on a spectrum. And unfortunately, our educational system, (laughs) our system for rewarding employees, Hollywood, like all of society is kind of telling us something different. I mean, I knew, for example, that writing this book, I I know that there are going to be people that are going to be like, oh, this is a bunch of hogwash, you know, like, uh, how could doing a little bit of good be that impactful? Well, the, the evidence is overwhelming, but we're catching up as a society to that. So if someone has that mindset, if they have already made up their mind that all this is, is just my employer trying to control me to make me do things some more than they're not going to see the bright side of it. And, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because I do think, especially for those of you who are supervising nonprofit staff, that you should, you should realize that it's kind of like um, exercise 50 years ago, right? So I think now we're all convinced that exercise, it's good for us. It's like, it's hard to come up with a reason for not exercising. But 50 years ago, the evidence was already overwhelming that exercise was fantastic for us but most of us sat on our butts not exercising unaware like resisting it and so i would say that social purpose is the new exercise i will also say in the nonprofit sector it feels to me like doing something along those lines where we do ask everyone to be job purposing in some way is also a good litmus test for who should and shouldn't be on our team. Yes, (laughs) I agree. Um, If I'm a supervisor, I would definitely do that because, you know, I'm lazy and I like working with great people. But I don't want to overinterpret that because I don't want us to to give up on the people that, um, that need a little more nudging. So there's actually very good evidence out there that if we just hire people by how socially purpose-oriented they are, um, academics call it pro-social behavior or pro-social inclination, if like that's the one filter we use, we will end up with like much higher performing, happier teams. But again, I'm not thrilled with overusing that because I don't want to leave people behind. I, I just feel like don't give up on those people that need a little, you know, need another few months to catch on. So, so B, that's fair. But now I'm going to ask you the hard question. In the recruitment process, how do we screen for that? Serious question. For pro-social behavior, how do we screen for that in the recruitment process? Well, I'll give you like the kind of the social human answer <laughs> and then the academic one. So the more social friendly one is just look at their history and ask them about it. It's not necessarily true that everybody that has volunteering in their, in their past and, you know, only 30% of Americans volunteer every year. So that, that whole 30% is going to be pro socially oriented because um, it could have been a requirement in high school. You know, they could be doing it because they were, you know, they, I mean, they did it, but you know, maybe they were doing it because, you know, they, there was like some cute girl or some cute guy, you know, there, there are all these other non pro social related reasons, but if it's in their history and you ask them about it and they're pro socially uh, oriented, 
they will light up when they talk about it. So they will sound like me talking about Camillo, like, oh my God, it's like, it was just so great to like tutor. So that's the kind of the friendly social answer. Now, if you want like the high rigor nerdy answer, uh, ask them a few simple questions. There are these tests that determine how much of a giver or a taker or a matcher we are. So giver is like the person we've been talking about, right? Like pro-socially oriented. Taker is look at the world, like what can I get out of it? Matcher is like, I'm just going to give exactly to this person as much as I got back. So um, Adam Grant, actually mentioning Adam, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm able to <laughs> send some love his way since he just uh, sent a lot my way. He's the professor at Wharton that you were talking about. He's a three times New York Times bestselling author, and he's the one that had that list that included my book. He has uh, an online test that is very easy to take. So anyway, there are formal ways of doing it, and Adam Grant's test is a fantastic way. Just have them fill it out and share the results. Good to know. We're actually going to link to Adam Grant's test in the show notes. We're going to show him some love too, B. We're going <laughs> to awesome. link to that in the show notes because it does sound like we should probably be screening for that pro-social behavior. I have to share with you, we could continue with this conversation for at least another hour, but I also want to be respectful of your time and make sure that we don't take too much of your time. But I can't let you go without asking you the off-the-map question. I understand that you have taken up, I don't know whether I refer to it as a practice or a hobby or a sport, but you have taken up surfing in the last few years. Yes. <laughs> so I was hoping that I sounded like so rational and having good judgment up until this point. And now like that's all thrown out the window because what? She started surfing in her 50s? Is she completely nuts? <laughs> so um Yes. And I can't tell you how energizing it is. I do think that we should all be, you know, trying something that is difficult and uncomfortable, but fun <laughs> at any point. I think it keeps us humble and it helps me understand like people that are like new to this, to like what I'm trying to teach. And <laughs> I love how you said, I don't know if it's a hobby, if it's, if it's a sport well, I can tell you that if you saw what I did yesterday out there, you would say, okay, this is not a sport. She's not quite at the sport level. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I do manage to stand up and uh, get some rides in, but it's, uh, it's definitely an evolving thing. And I, uh, I, it keeps me humble. And I think it also helps me stay sane. So when you're out here, Dolph, I'll take you surfing. I was going to say mad respect, and I would love to learn how to surf, but I should probably learn how to swim before I learn how to surf. <laughs> as long, assuming that I'll be at some point in water over my head, I should learn how to swim first. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, send me a text when you've learned how to swim, and then we'll plan the surf lesson. <laughs> you better believe it. B, I am so thankful that you joined us today, and I want to make sure that our listeners know all of the ways they can connect with you. So listeners, if you are interested in B's book, and let me tell you, you really should be because this can help transform the teams at your nonprofits, go to the URL dogoodatwork.com. It's all matched together, dogoodatwork.com. And if you want to be on B's mailing list, just text do good at work. 
Again, all mashed together to 47177. That's do good at work to 47177. And there's something else that B shared with me, and I think this is an over-the-top offer, in part because this book, frankly, should easily sell itself. It's on Adam Grant's list of 30 books that everybody should be reading right now. So this book is clearly going to sell itself. But if you pre-order, it is scheduled to launch on November 24th. So if you pre-order your copy of the book, you will be able to select from a number of different gifts. Now, we're recording this about six to eight weeks in advance, so the gifts are not fully finalized. But B has shared with me what a few of them are. You can get a mug. You could get, and this is frankly probably my favorite one, you could get to be a part of a discussion group with B, who is the author. And you could also choose to have B pick up litter and debris on the beach for five minutes. And if that's the one you choose, she will take a picture of it and she will send you a text. So that's how she is job purposing her own book launch. And I love that. So there are lots of ways you can connect. Make sure that you do go to dogoodatwork.com and pre-order this book. B, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure, Dolph. I really look forward to hearing from your listeners. And yeah, what an enriching conversation. I really love this. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, if you did not catch those URLs or text codes or something like that, because you were busy thinking about ways that your nonprofit and team can inclusively start to create some job-purposing opportunities have no fear. You can just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and you can get the URLs we talked about, the code, and we'll also link to some other things there as well. So at any point of the show, if I said we were going to link to it, we'll make sure we have those links in there as well. If you enjoyed this episode, I would recommend two more episodes for you to check out. Go back to episode 130 with Jeannie Cockrell and Joan MacArthur Blair. And you may recall that was an episode about building resilience. And also check out episode 141 with Wayne Slate on the employee-centered organization. Some of the things that B talked about, Wayne has talked about as well. So it's a great way to reinforce this. And finally, as you're looking into 2021 and you think, hey, Maybe we should be doing strategic planning. Reach out to me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And that, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.